Hi, this is Unsuitable with Mary B. Seyfried, the podcast where I interview single Christians about their lives and faith. Welcome to the wrap-up episode for season four. I'm here to tie together the nine interviews from this season with a story, a few key insights, and how it all applies to you. We heard from nine incredible single Christian creatives. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to those episodes, you definitely need to. They talk about the creative process, identity, rejection, singleness, rest, and so much more. I am simply smitten with each of them, and I hope you all enjoyed getting to know them as much as I did. One of the most common themes this season was creative identity. How do you know when you can call yourself a creative, or more specifically, a writer, a painter, a singer, or whatever your thing is? The story today is about a creative identity crisis brought on by a series of poor performance decisions and a German vocal coach who had zero time for them. After that, we'll walk through how this theme cropped up in the various interviews from this season, then I'm going to give you a few nuggets about singleness and the creative life to walk away with. So, let's dive on in. I stood on the stage in front of the renowned German vocal coach and 30 of my new peers and professors in the sweltering performance space. It was early July, and I'd arrived in Austria only five days prior. I'd recently graduated with my master's of music in vocal performance and was excited and nervous for my first foray into the world of professional singing. I was in Austria for a six-week opera training program. During that time, we had classes on performance and audition technique, German, diction, vocal lessons and coaching, and acting. The six weeks were also littered with a series of master classes and performances, the opportunity to sing for an agent, and the culminating Meisterzinger competition. Within the first three days of the program, the faculty held auditions that would determine in which concerts we would perform during the program. Knowing that jet lag adversely affects the voice, I decided to give myself a few days to adjust so I'd be in tip-top shape for the auditions. I'd learned a few new pieces for the program and brought a couple more I wanted to work on with my new teacher. It was the first time choosing and learning songs without the guidance of my voice teacher. For the audition, however, I decided to play it safe and present pieces I knew inside and out. So in the three days I spent acclimating to the new time zone and learning the layout of the city, I focused all of my nervous energy on the auditions. Orientation day arrived with its flurry of meetings and introductions, tours, and information. The program would start in full force on Monday, after the auditions. In the meantime, they had arranged a few opportunities for some lucky singers. One of those was a master class with a vocal coach whose bio detailed an extensive list of impressive professional accomplishments. The most recent line in my bio was about being cast as Sister Anne of the Cross, a nun who entered the show during a dramatic death scene, nearly fainted, 
got yelled at, and exited after about two minutes and exactly zero lines spoken or sung. As my performance resume wasn't exactly littered with leading roles, I took in the news of the masterclass without much consideration. I forgot that my resume also included the fact that I just graduated with my master's. And perhaps that might signify to the powers that be that I was a for real singer who enjoyed singing in front of a room full of humans and then having that performance picked apart for the sake of learning. Don't get me wrong. I love learning. I just don't love doing so in front of untold masses of other singers. I'll take a nice private coaching session any day. Master classes? It's a no from me. After the announcement, the meeting ended and I walked back to our dorm room, which was called The Heim. I noticed a crowd around the bulletin board on which they posted announcements. My stomach dropped when I saw I'd been put on the list for the master class. There was a space next to my name to write which aria I would present. I mentally scanned the list of pieces I brought before deciding on one of the new pieces that I'd learned just for this program. It was lovely, and it was short, so I reasoned there'd be plenty of time to work through it. As the masterclass was the next day, I didn't have time to arrange a rehearsal with the pianist. It'll probably be fine, I told myself without conviction. The hour of the masterclass arrived, and I walked into the small performance space, dressed professionally, and made up. I grabbed a program and groaned when I saw my name in the middle of the list just before the break. That meant I'd have to sit through three singers, which would give my anxiety plenty of time to work itself into a frenzy. I sat down and focused on my breathing. At least the seats are mostly empty, I told myself. The first three singers worked through their arias, all of which were lengthy and impressive. They were all older than I was and had come to this program with the intention of meeting agents and taking their singing careers to the next level. As the master class progressed, the seats gradually filled with latecomers. By the time it was my turn, the audience was full. My hands shaking, I climbed the three stairs onto the stage, handed my music to the pianist, and walked to the center of the stage. I took a deep breath and said, Hello, my name is Mary B. Seyfried, and today I'll be singing In Quelle Trine Morbide from Manon Lesco. The second I started singing, I realized I had made a colossal mistake in choosing this aria. Having only practiced it a cappella, I neglected to make note of the piano part, which didn't line up rhythmically with the melody, except Since I hadn't practiced with the piano part, I kept trying to make the melody line up with the piano part, and then the pianist kept trying to play it correctly. So I lost track of the rhythm of where I was in the piece, much less putting any sort of emotion into the piece. Everything crumbled, and my face became a granite sheet of wide-eyed terror. Any shred of confidence I'd managed to cling to evaporated culminating in the cardinal mistake a classical singer can make. I breathed in the middle of a word. The teacher stopped me. Though the piece consisted of a 
mere two pages of music, just basically a jingle in the world of Italian opera, she cut me off. That's when I knew I was in for it. And the worst part was I felt I deserved it because I knew I'd made the wrong choice and now it was time to face the consequences. It was the second day of this program, my first time singing in front of my peers, and I had completely whiffed it. The coach spent the next 10 minutes eviscerating my performance. I didn't know the rhythm. I wasn't leading the pianist. My Italian wasn't pure. But worst of all, you have no passion, she said. And you will not make it as an opera singer if you have no passion. But like in a German accent, but I'm not going to subject y'all to my German accent. As I ingested every unfiltered word, I focused every ounce of energy on receiving her feedback graciously. I wouldn't cry. I wouldn't argue. I forced my face into a polite smile and swallowed the heat of shame threatening to overtake me. She asked me to try again. I began, and this time it was, if possible, even worse. She stopped me again, then told me to sing the last couple lines of the song. I obliged, not completely butchering it and even mustering out a passable sustained high note and some acting. When the music ended, there was an excruciating pause. She shook her head, told me to sit down. It's customary to applaud when a student finishes their time up front. The room was silent as I collected my music and climbed back down the stairs. The teacher announced that we'd take a 10-minute break before hearing the next singer. Everything in me wanted to leave, lock myself in my dorm room, and try to forget what had just happened. I considered this course of action as I shoved my music back into my bag. The room was not only filled with peers, but also some of the faculty of this program, professional voice teachers and coaches who would hear me sing for my audition in a couple of days. I decided that I'd lost enough dignity that day without adding crybaby to unprepared on my list of terrible first impressions. So I sat through the remaining singers, some of whom also got stern lectures, but all of whom at least got to finish their arias. Once the masterclass concluded, I did my best to exit at a normal pace and walked back to the heim. I closed the door to my room and lay on my twin bed, rethinking my entire life. Though I felt humiliated and angry, there was also part of me that knew she was right. I'd left grad school unsure of what exactly I wanted to do with my degree. Becoming a professional opera singer wasn't a lifelong dream of mine, but I now had that skill in my tool chest, and there was something comforting about the fact that I was on a designated and respectable path. I stumbled into grad school having never sung an aria in my life, and yet here I was, getting yelled at by a big-name vocal coach on a stage in Austria, the birthplace of some of the classical greats. I realized as I lay there that she touched on something in me. It was this belief that lived in my bones and came out in moments like this. I didn't believe I was good enough to make it as a singer. In spite of my two degrees— and years of training, I still didn't feel like a real singer, much less a good one. 
And every time I walked onto a stage, I carried that belief with me. Every song I sang was infused with a need to prove to myself and to the audience that I was good and I deserved to be on that stage. And in that moment, lying on my little twin bed in that sweltering dorm room in Austria, I started to wonder what it would take to finally feel worthy of the identity of singer. The theme of creative identity came up in almost every episode. I think it's an important one for all creatives, but particularly for those of us who are single. In our quest for identity, meaning, and definition in life, it's tempting to put the full weight of that good desire onto our good work, particularly if that work also bears the weight of a calling. We can get emotionally wrapped up in our work to the point that our work suffers and we suffer. For those of us who are single, the work can become a thing we use to fill a perceived void and show others that we are just fine. Thank you very much. I notice it, that feeling, as I read the Instagram bios of many Christian creatives. The first thing listed in so many of those bios is wife, followed by mom. And then I look at mine and I see it's communicator and then creator, my job, what I do. As creatives, our work can feel, as Caroline put it in episode one, like an extension of ourselves. In episode two, Ashley and I talked about the levels of vulnerability involved in self-identifying with various creative genres. Norma talked about how much weight she put on monetary success and acclaim in her identity as a writer. We all spoke about it as something of a balance between the boldness required to step into the title and the need to maintain a healthy level of distance. So we're either too self-conscious to share or too emotionally wrapped up in the work to receive constructive feedback. There were some guests like Kat and Sylvia who took some convincing to call themselves writer and illustrator, respectively. Anna and Norma, on the other hand, always knew. Sylvia, Obi, Kat, and Caroline talked about shifting between creative identities, and Stephen wrestled with following his creative path when it took an unexpected turn. In all of this, I was struck by the amount of grace we are given in our respective paths, the grace to learn as we go, And I also noticed in each of these stories the importance of remembering that the creative life is more about process than arrival. And I think the single experience is similar in that regard. Perhaps you have trouble knowing what to call yourself or how to define yourself. You might be at a time in your life where nothing makes sense or you're walking through a transition or a season of uncertainty. Maybe you're realizing that you believe some less than helpful things about yourself as a person, as someone who is single, or as a creative. Kat and I talked about limiting beliefs and false narrative, and the power we have to challenge the stories we believe about ourselves. When it comes to defining ourselves, you might notice that there can be a gap between what we know we should believe and the deeply embodied beliefs we tend to act out of. Do we act as though we believe God is trustworthy? Do we interact with people like we have something to prove? 
Are we able to walk away from our work regularly? As I mentioned in episode two, I feel the tension these days when I think about calling myself a singer. I used to think that there would be a day when I arrived, a switch would flip and all my self-consciousness would melt away. And maybe there will be a big moment, but I think it will only be possible because of the small decisions and everyday actions that help me unlearn the angst I now associate with singing. But I don't actually think the creative life or life in general is about arriving. I think it's a process we learn. It keeps happening and we keep learning little by little. We learn as we go and we learn in small everyday practices. We learn behind the scenes and in the context of relationships. So for today, if you're feeling pressure about your identity or creative practices, consider borrowing from this season's guests. Maybe like Ashley, you need to go for an aimless walk. Maybe like Caroline, you need to take in some beauty and shake up your routine. Maybe like Norma, you need to sit in the chair and just free write. Maybe like Anna, you need to spend some time in listening prayer. Or like Obi, you need to give yourself a day to feel and grieve. I encourage you to give yourself permission to learn, to have an off day where you need to just lay on the floor and cry, to have a day when you feel unstoppable. The world will keep turning, and you will continue to feel the sporadic urge to make things. Your calling is not dependent on your frantic efforts, but it is a path God has invited you to walk out of delight. In Walking on Water, Madeline Lingle writes, Creativity is a way of living life, no matter what our vocation or how we earn our living. It's a long road, y'all. So... You might as well slow down and appreciate the process. That is a wrap for season four. Unsuitable with Mary B. Safer will be back for season five in a couple of months. Sign up for my email list at marybsafer.com to stay up to date. While you're there, check out the blog and the coaching pages for resources designed just for you. Are you a writer who feels behind or alone? Do you dream about publishing your writing, but you're not sure what to do next or where even to start? My friends at Hope Writers have put together a free quiz that will help you identify where you are on the writing path. The link for that is in the episode description. Hope Writers is an online writers community where you can finally get the help you need to put your hope-filled words into the world. I've been a member for a year and it has been a game changer for me. They only open for membership three times a year and their next enrollment period is September 14th through the 18th. Check out the links in the episode description for more info. Thank you so much for listening. Sound editing is by Andrew Kim and theme music is by Chad Rollinson. That is all for season four. So I will catch y'all on the flippity flops.